0: Go ahead and take out your Bibles with me. Let's look together at the book of Genesis. Look with me at the book of Genesis, chapter 19. Chapter 19. As we come back now, after a couple of weeks away from our study, we return to our study of the book. Study of Abraham. The plan has been to uh, continue looking at Genesis 12 through 25. In Genesis 25, when we come to the death of Abraham. We'll return to Romans for a season, and then uh, we'll return again uh, to the book of Genesis. Genesis. We continue moving back and forth between the two uh, as, as the Lord leads, leads. Us. Let me begin. Genesis 19 and verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come. Let us make our father drink, drink wine. We will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went <clears let throat> in lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, "Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and." Lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Benami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Do I need to change the battery in this? Okay. Technical difficulties. Testing one, two. Good to go. Okay. This passage is a great example. Of a passage of Scripture that I would never have chosen to preach on were it not for our commitment to going verse by verse through passages in the Bible. There is not much about this passage of Scripture that is immediately appealing to us. And yet, Jesus knows what He is doing when He puts Scriptures like this into our Bible. Our Savior included this passage of Scripture in the book of Genesis for a reason, namely because we need to hear it, as unappealing as it might be. Sometimes in the Scriptures, our Lord gives us accounts of men and women who have gone before us their actions stand as a positive example for us. He calls us to learn from them and to emulate them and to imitate them. At other times, our Savior gives us the actions of men and women who have gone before us that we may learn from their sins and not fall into the same types of pitfalls that they fell into. Either way, Christ, And this passage is a gift of love to us from Christ. So let us look at it seriously. Let us consider its lessons for us. Let us take it to heart. Hello. Let's start with the context. Look with me at verse 29. Verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. In verse 29, we're told that God remembered Abraham, and therefore because of Abraham's prayers, his intercession, he spared Lot the judgment that he had poured out on the cities of the plain. Remember, God had revealed to Abraham what he was going to do to the cities on the plain. And we we studied together how Abraham had pleaded with the Lord, interceding especially for the righteous, those in the cities of the plain who, who would come to know God and love God. And in the city of Sodom, only one such man was found, Abraham's nephew, Lot. And so God remembered Abraham's intercession. He, he rescued Lot and his family, although Lot's wife did not run hard towards salvation, towards Zoar, the little city of refuge that God had appointed for them. Rather, she held back, and looking back towards her old life in the city of Sodom, she was caught up in the judgment of God along with the other inhabitants of this valley near the Dead Sea. And so now... We have Lot and we have his two daughters. We do not know how much time has passed, but we do know they're no longer living in Zoar. Why are they no longer living in Zoar? Well the only reason we're told for why they have moved is that Lot was afraid to remain living in Zoar. Why? Why why was he afraid? to continue living in this city. Moses doesn't tell us. And so we're, we're left to, to speculate, although Moses seems to speak as if, as if we should know, as if we, we should understand why he was afraid to live in Zoar. Uh, perhaps the people of Zoar were continuing to live in the same kind of immorality as the other residents of the cities of the plain had lived. And perhaps Lot was fearing that the judgment of God would soon come on Zoar as well. Whatever the case, he and his daughters are now living in a cave up in the hills above the valley. Now, what follows in our verses is the account of how these two sisters brought their father into a drunken stupor, laid with him, and conceived children to carry on his family name. From these two children would come two nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites, Pagan nations who would be enemies of God and enemies of God's people. I dare say that none of us in this room would want to leave a legacy like the one we find here. We've come to know the God of the universe who is good and holy and perfect and wise. He is the delight of our hearts and the treasure of our souls. We so long for others to to know the glory of our God. We so long to live lives that would show the world how truly good our God is. If you are a Christian, I would assume that that you, as well as I, desire to live lives that put God's wisdom to the test, that show that trusting Him and His ways really does lead to to peace and, and real joy. And yet here's the thing. Lot knew God too. Lot had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Lot longed to live for God's glory. Lot was a saved man, a man that the New Testament calls righteous because of his faith in God. But his actions in this passage, and the actions of his daughters, only served to bring shame to them and to dishonor the God that they worship. We have here a believing man and his daughters involved in a shameful act. So the question for us is this. How do we keep ourselves from falling into disastrous sins like the one we read of here? Only the grace that Jesus Christ provides will keep us saved and keep us from making a shipwreck of our faith. And yes, it is only the loving guidance of Jesus Christ that will keep us from falling into pitfalls, that will ruin our witness and perhaps ruin our lives. But that grace that Jesus gives to sustain us, that grace that Jesus gives to protect us, that guidance that he gives to keep us saved and to keep us walking well, it's given to us through passages like this one. Jesus is giving us guidance here. And so here are three warnings, three warnings that our Savior gives us to keep us from falling into devastating sin. We're going to talk about the danger of poor parenting, the danger of drunkenness, and then we'll spend most of our time on the danger of good desires left unchecked. Let's talk first about the danger of poor parenting. About a month ago, we spent an entire sermon on Lot's relationship with his daughters and the lessons that Christian fathers in particular need to learn from Lot's failures about how to care well for their daughters. And therefore, I'm only going to spend a moment or two on this particular warning. Lot was a man whose life showed some real evidences of grace, There were real signs that God had placed His love upon this man. That Lot was a child of God. We've we've noticed Lot's hospitality in the past. We've noticed Lot's kindness. We've noticed Lot's courage as he put himself between the angry mob around his house and the visitors who were inside. We've seen in his old words that Lot was a man who cared about right and wrong and a man who desired to walk with God. And yet, as the leader of his home, Lot failed greatly. It began way back in Genesis 13, when he took the better land for himself, rather than honoring the uncle who had cared for him for so long. He moved his family into Sodom and surrounded his family with the influences of ungodly people. He allowed his two daughters to become betrothed to two of the men of Sodom, two of the very same men who were a part of that mob that surrounded his house and wanted to rape his visitors. Lot was willing to give his daughters to the mob of men and have them violated in order to protect the guests in his house. Lot should have been willing to die himself before he would allow any of those men in that mob to lay a hand on his daughters, but that is not how he responded. Lot failed to care for his daughters well. And so when we come to our passage, the last passage in Genesis concerning Lot and his family, this is is it as far as what we know about Lot. It should not surprise us to see that his daughters are acting in an ungodly and foolish manner. We reap what we sow. Train up a child in the way he, is, he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The opposite of that is true as well. Train up a child in foolish and ungodly ways, and when he is old, unless God intervenes by grace, he will not depart from those foolish, ungodly ways. I wonder after the events of Genesis 19 were over and Lot was sober and saw what had happened I wonder if he if he looked at what his daughters had done and if he grieved over his own poor choices in the way he had sought to care for them I mean he had raised them in Sodom after all he had surrounded them with people for whom no type of sexual immorality was taboo He was willing to place their hands in marriage to men for whom sexual immorality was clearly a way of life. Could he now be shocked that they would have concocted the scheme of incest? Parents, what are the chief influences in the lives of your children? The influences upon them today do shape who your children will be in the future. In survey after survey, children and especially older children tell us that the opinions and the views that matter most to them are not the opinions and the views of their parents, it is the opinions and the views of the friends that they hang around. It's not what mom or dad thinks is good that matters to many. For many kids it is what their friends think is Cool. And this is what you get in a society in which, in which most children spend more real quality time each week with their friends at school than they do with their families. In fact, many kids spend more time with a computer screen or a television screen each week than they do with their parents. Their, their minds and their hearts are captivated by that which is in front of them, and they're being told through advertisements and shows and movies and music and Facebook statuses, what they should like and what they should not like? Friends, is it not the desire of our hearts that our children would grow up to know the Lord, to love the Lord, to trust the Lord? It is not our desire, I'm sorry, is it not our desire that they would know the same Christ that we know? and that they would enter into the same kind of peace and joy that we have found. Do we not desire for our children to walk a path of faith that will cause their lives to be blessed? Then we must begin today doing everything we can to see that the most important influences in the lives of our children are gospel influences. Influences that point them to Christ and his ways and his word. It's a tragedy that gets replayed over and over and over again in our world every day. The tragedy of Christian parents knowing that their children are not walking in the truth. Seeing them as grown adults now make terrible, foolish decisions that lead them down a path of wickedness and immorality. There's the tragedy of Christian parents knowing that they had some part in setting their children's feet all the more firmly down that path of destruction. Only the peace that Christ gives can bring comfort to the hearts of parents who are grieving over children like these. Parents, one warning we see in this passage and from all of Genesis 18 and 19 and all of the passages about Lot and his family is that we must pay special attention to how we are caring for the souls of our children. Care for their minds. Give them a good education. Care for their bodies. Take them to the doctor. Get, get checkups. Care for their eyes. Care for their teeth. For God's sake and for their sake, care for their souls don't neglect that most important work. The time you spend today pointing children to the glories of Christ will not be in vain and you may save them not only from the very flames of hell itself, but you'll also maybe save them from many foolish choices and awful consequences in their futures. And so we see here the danger of poor parenting. But let's move on to the danger of of drunkenness. The second lesson we see here is the danger of drunkenness. There are so many reasons why Christians are to be sober-minded people. We are not yet in heaven. We are still pilgrims passing through this world. And this world that we're passing through is a world of danger. Satan and his forces of darkness are still after us. The world seeks to to lure us in with its siren song into its trap. Our own flesh battles against us and would have us forsake Christ for for passing worldly pleasures. We must be sober-minded if we're going to stay on the path of following Christ, trusting Christ that will bring us safely to heaven. The Christian life is a life lived in a pagan world, which means that there are minefields all around us that could draw our hearts away from our Savior. You wouldn't put a drunk man in a minefield and ask him to navigate it. If ever there was a need for clear thinking and for sober-mindedness, it's in the Christian life. We have a high calling and responsibility. As Christians, we've been entrusted with the message of the gospel. We've been called to live with integrity so that others would see the glory of Christ in us. Most of us have responsibilities of various kinds that we are called to fulfill. Lot was a father, which meant he was not only responsible for caring for himself, but for shepherding his daughters as well. You cannot shepherd well when you're drunk. The Christian life, at its root, is a life of pursuing Christ. Longing to see more of Christ, to love more of Christ, to behold his glory, and to fall more in love with him. And the more that happens, the more we will have the heart to obey him and to do what is well. But a drunk man and a drunk woman can't think well enough to walk a straight line, much less think well about the glories of Christ. Everything about drunkenness is antithetical to what it means to be a Christian. Drunkenness invites us to be the very opposite of what our God, who is good and wise, has told us to be. Drunkenness is all about losing control. Drunkenness is all about losing sober-mindedness. Drunkenness is all about losing your ability to think with wisdom and discernment. Drunkenness is opposed to the very character of God who has never for one moment in all eternity lost control of any part of himself or any single molecule in this universe. He does all things well and wisely. Drunkenness makes us the very opposite of God whose image we are called to bear well in this world. So let me Say this as clearly as I can. I know many of you, you know this, but I will never have it said that we didn't make this clear from the pulpit of our church. To become drunk is stupid, it's foolish, and it opens the door to a whole host of other terrible sins. Ultimately, it leads to much sorrow and much pain. There's an old saying that a drunk man would kill his own mother. The idea is that even the best of men and the best of women are capable of the most heinous sins when they are drunk. If you want proof of the basic depravity of all people, take the very best woman or man you can find, get them drunk and see the vile things that will come out of their heart and out of their mouth. See what they will then be capable of. Drunkenness takes the lock of self control off of the human heart and allows it to express openly its most base desires, and it is not a pretty picture. Listen to Proverbs 23 describe the man who has become drunk, who has woe, who has sorrow who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who tarry long over wine and those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly, for in the end it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Friends, when we are anxious, stressed, sad, in emotional need, let us not turn to drunkenness, but to Christ. Let us not be filled with wine, but with the Spirit of God. We should live every day controlled by no other influence than our Savior, by His Spirit, through His Word. We are to be slaves of Christ, and we are not to let anything else enslave us. We are to have one master and one master alone, and that is our Savior. We feast upon His promises We look to him and rest upon him. We allow the wonderful truths of God to lift up our heads and to strengthen our souls and to set us on our feet again. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And had Lot been filled with the Spirit rather than with alcohol, this terrible episode and all of its consequences could have been avoided. And so we see here a strong warning about drunkenness. Now our third and final lesson we'll spend a little bit more time on this one, because it's the one I think we most need to hear this morning. It's the danger of unchecked desires, the danger of unchecked desires. You see, sins and the suffering that follow them do not just come out of nowhere. Sins are born. And do you know how sins are born? They all begin the same way. They all begin with a desire. Listen carefully to a wonderfully helpful passage from the book of James. James helps us understand sin so well. Listen to James chapter 1 verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. Listen carefully. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Here, God graciously gives us the whole lifespan of a sin from its beginning to its end. And we see that sin begins with a desire that when left unchecked, leads us into sin. Sometimes, the desires that appear in our hearts are themselves wicked desires. If I walk by a group of guys having a party... And they're all out of their mind, drunk. But they seem to be having a good time. And all of a sudden, there's this desire that flashes across my heart that says, man, I wish I was like that right now. Well, that's a wicked desire. That's an awful thing to have suddenly come flash into your heart. And, And as soon as that wicked desire rears its ugly head in my soul, it is my responsibility as a Christian to crush it. So... Are you out of your mind? Do you really think being drunk would be good for you? Think about what your Savior has told you. Are you not satisfied in Christ? Do you not belong to the King of the universe? Are you not an adopted son of God? Are not all things working for your good at this very moment? Will you not one day possess all things? Will you not spend all eternity in paradise with Christ himself? And in light of all this, are you really tempted to drunkenness? We preach to ourselves that way. We we preach the gospel to ourselves. We preach the glory of Christ to ourselves. And we crush that wicked desire and get rid of it and fling it from us like a cancer. We've said before that, that the Christian life at times can be like playing whack-a-mole. Remember whack-a-mole? A little game at Chuck E. Cheese's and other places where you have these little moles that stick up their heads out of the holes and you have your hammer and you're supposed to hit them when they stick up and you, you never know where it's going to pop up or how many or how fast. So also each and every day, wicked desires will spring up in your life. Wicked desires will spring up in your heart because of your flesh, because of the world, because of the devil. And it is our calling to take the hammer of a superior joy in Jesus Christ and to whack those wicked desires away. To not allow them any traction. To fling them away from us as quickly as we can. But, sometimes the desires that lead us into sin are not wicked desires. Sometimes the desires that can lead us into sin are very good desires. That's, that's the situation here. The desire of Lot's daughters is not a bad desire. Do you see verse 32? Verse 32. What, what is expressed? Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him. Here's the desire that we may preserve offspring from our father. The desire of these two daughters was that the family line be continued. Now this is important to people in our own day, and it was especially important to people in Old Testament days. Men and women cared deeply about continuing the family line. They wanted to know that the family name was being passed down, and the scheme of these daughters seemed all the more appealing to them because Even if they were to leave and to find husbands for themselves, it would be their husbands' names that would be passed down. But by committing this awful sin, since Lot had never had a son, if they were to give birth to sons, his family name would be continued. Now is the desire for a family name to continue a bad desire? Not in and of itself. Yet when it became clear to these daughters that this desire was not going to be met, They had a choice. They could either be content in God or they could let this desire consume them to the point that they would take matters into their own hands and act in a wicked way. We've seen this before. Abraham and Sarah, right? They wanted that sun so badly. God had promised that the sun was coming. It had now been more than a decade since God had promised. The sun had not yet come. What were they going to do? Were they going to just be content in God? Were they going to look to their God and find peace in Him and say, Okay, this desire of ours has been unmet, but it's okay because of the joy that you give, because of the peace that you give? That's not what they did. Rather, they allowed that desire to continue to grow unchecked until they took matters into their own hands. And so we have the whole story of Hagar and Ishmael and the consequences that come from it. Friends, you and I are faced with these kinds of choices every day. All of us, daily, have desires that don't get met. And we have a choice either to be okay with that because we belong to Christ or to let those unmet desires burn in us until they lead us into sin. A husband comes home desiring a few minutes of rest after work. Instead, as soon as he walks in the door, his wife confronts him with item after item after item that he needs to deal with. His desire for peace and quiet goes unmet, and now he has a choice. He can run to Christ in his heart, find contentment there, get the strength to deal with the situation well, or he can become upset that his desire is unmet, and he can begin to act sinfully, yelling at his wife, perhaps yelling at his kids, acting selfishly and hurtfully to those he loves. A mother wants her children to behave that's a good desire, isn't it? They continue to misbehave. How will she respond when that desire goes unmet? Will she go to Christ for help? Will she remember that He is in control and pray to Him and, and gain from Him the strength to, to speak well to her children and to discipline them reasonably and well? Or will she act without thinking and lash out at the children and lose her temper and become angry? A single man or a single woman desires a spouse. And so far, God has not brought that person into their life. How do they respond? Do they allow this good desire to lead them to become angry at God, to lead them into despair, to, to lead them into depression? Or do they truly trust that should it be God's will for them to remain single, He will be more than enough for them. And that the satisfaction and love He gives is far more than any human spouse can give. I mean, folks, these are just a few examples. We, we could, we could write off a thousand different examples of good desires that if left unchecked, will lead us away from the God who loves us so much and gave His Son for us. In situation after situation, in matters big and small, you and I are faced day after day with desire after desire after desire that left unchecked will lead us into sin. Do you see then how every day is a minefield? Do you see how every day is full of traps and snares that can lead us down a path of sorrow and pain and death and a falling away from the living God? Our only hope is Christ. Our only hope of walking by faith and remaining steadfast and persevering is to be constantly looking to Him. To find a superior satisfaction in Him. To find real contentment in Him. To find real peace in Him. So that every other unmet desire is okay. Because we have Christ Everything else is rubbish compared to Christ. Dear friends, as powerful as the pool of desires can be, the power of the glory of Christ to enthrall us and to satisfy us and to meet our deepest needs is greater still. If we only look to Christ, we will find all we need to live wisely, faithfully, obedient, and to live in a way where we will be safeguarded from disastrous sins like what we see here. So let me close with this. This is the last we see of Lot. From this episode comes two sons, which become two peoples, Who are not a blessing from the Lord, but a curse. Because they become enemies of God and enemies of his people. And this is the legacy of Lot. I wonder, how do you want your life to be remembered? Do you want to end well? Don't you want the end of your life to be an end that points people to the fountain of everlasting waters? The Lord Jesus Christ It was said of Robert Murray McShane after he died, one man said he was the most faultless and attractive exhibition of the true Christian which the people of Scotland had ever seen embodied in a living form. (coughs) His great study, I love this, his great study was to be Christ-like. He was a man of remarkable singleness of heart. He lived but for one object. The glory of the Redeemer in connection with the salvation of immortal souls. Are those not the kind of words that we long to hear people speak or said of us after we are gone? Words that show that we live not for ourselves, but for Christ. Wouldn't we say we want to live in such a way that when we are in heaven... People still here on Earth will be loving Jesus all the more because of His glory seen in our lives. That Justin now, he was a sinner with all sorts of problems, all sorts of issues. But Jesus Christ took him and did some mighty things through his life, and we watched him change. He started out as a foolish, sinful young man, but we saw what he was when he was older we saw the power of the gospel to change people. Isn't that what you want in your life? Isn't that the kind of legacy that you want to leave? I've often thought to myself that at my funeral... If people are going to say nice things about me, I also want them to say things about my struggles and my sins and my failures. I want people to know what a sinner I was and then I want them to see that any good that could at all have come from my life has come through the power and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want people's attention and affection to be drawn to Christ. Is that not the kind of legacy you want to live? Christians are no longer men and women who live for ourselves. We are worshipers of Jesus who have given ourselves willingly to His service. There is no better master to serve. There is no better name to live for. Jesus Christ is worthy of all glory and honor and power and dominion and it is our desire as Christians to live in such a way that others give Him that glory and honor. But if we want to live to leave such a legacy as that, we must take these lessons to heart. We must learn from this passage and other passages what our Savior is teaching us. And so, let us who are parents or grandparents or uncles or aunts seek to care well for the souls of the children under our influence There are children in this church who are being influenced each and every week by the men and women they see in this place. We are all caring for the souls of these children with the influence that we have on them. How are we doing? Friends, let us avoid drunkenness like the plague. Let us see it as the wicked vice that it is and have nothing to do with it. Let us instead be filled with the Spirit of God. And finally, each and every day, Let us seek to walk with Christ, looking to him, finding joy and our satisfaction in him. Let us be people of prayer, people in the word, people who love godly conversation with brothers and sisters in Christ about our Savior. And as we walk in him, let us keep a constant watch over our own hearts. Let us keep our desires in check, knowing that if our delights and our desires are centered on the Lord Jesus Christ, God will give us the desires of our hearts. In church, we will be the happiest people alive. For there is no limit to Christ's ability to satisfy. Let's pray. So at this time, I would call all of us to think about what we've heard and to go to our Father and to respond. If you're here this morning.